2: Now, first tonight, we are crossing to Brussels and joining us is the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, Simon Coveney. Uh, Minister, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. As I said, you are in Brussels and one of the big priorities, I presume, of the EU institutions at the moment is to open up international travel, save the summer tourism season when do you anticipate that the rules around non-essential international travel will begin to change
3: well certainly the intention of the european union is to try to facilitate safe travel within the european union this summer so um, what's being said now is that by next month in in terms of june uh, the hope is that we will have what's called a green passport system in place which effectively means that everybody traveling within the European Union will, on their mo- mobile phone, have a a code which can be scanned in the airport, which will give the uh, the country and the official uh, your COVID health status, if you like, uh, whether you've been vaccinated, whether you're PCR tested and whether you've tested negative or whether you've had COVID and recovered from it. And then on the basis of that system, uh, countries will be able to make decisions as to whether they want to open up their countries to international travel again uh, without applying restrictions to people particularly who've been fully vaccinated so from an irish perspective this is really helpful Um, and certainly i think from next month on we will be able to make decisions as a government as to whether we can open up to international travel safely for people who've been vaccinated across the european union or for irish people who may want to go abroad and come back uh, home again. Um, I think we'll be cautious in terms of the timelines on how we do this. And obviously we will consult closely with the public health experts that advise government as well in relation to, to restrictions. I mean, we have one of the most restrictive mm. systems uh, anywhere in Europe now in the context of international travel. And for some countries, of course, we require a mandatory hotel quarantine uh, for up to 12 days. Um, so moving from that very restrictive system on international travel uh, to a system where, whereby we could allow people who are fully vaccinated to travel without restriction or with limited quarantine requirements uh, is obviously a big change and a lot of people want to know if that's going to happen and if and if so, when it's going to happen. Um, I think it's just too early to give timelines yet, but I certainly think uh, from, from June on, we will have this new system that's being put in place by the European Commission, which will certainly give us a basis for knowing and understanding with a lot of certainty uh, the COVID status of people who are travelling around the European Union. And that certainly will, I think, be a basis for the government to be able to decide with NEFID, the public health team, uh, what's appropriate and what's safe in terms of reopening international travel uh, across the summer. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't think this is likely uh, to, uh, to facilitate international travel in June, but certainly beyond June, uh, I think there's a good chance that, that we will uh, gradually start to see international travel uh, being part of people's lives again, obviously focusing on people who are vaccinated first.
2: So the Tanishta said today, uh, he was speculating about, you know, potentially uh, indoor pubs and indoor dining from July. And then a relatively normal August, he spoke about most restrictions being lifted at that point. And by August, if we were to follow what's happening in Israel, we should be there at that point. They have welcomed back foreign tourists. So August, would you say, potentially?
3: Look, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to mislead people in terms of timelines but but certainly i think by the end of this month the government will want to give a pretty clear signal in terms of what we expect will be the timeline around how we will use this new green passport system that will be in place we're certainly going to be fully bought into that system in in terms of uh providing the data to make sure that ireland is part of that Um, and then it's up to the government to decide with our public health team how we use that and how quickly we open up international travel after that and to who. Uh, And I think the likely scenario here is that in the, you know, certainly uh, in August, but perhaps even in July, we may well see um, uh, international travel being a possibility again for people who are fully vaccinated. Uh, I think though we will act with probably more caution Mm. than many other countries in the European Union uh, and that is because I think as an island, uh, we have managed now to get COVID levels down to a manageable level, even though, you know, and we've seen today, on, uh, you know, tragically, another seven people have lost their lives to COVID in Ireland, uh, as of the uh, the numbers today. Um, so we need to be cautious uh, and we need to make sure that international travel is not essentially reseeding COVID infection in communities in Ireland or bringing in new variants that we don't fully understand so the approach from government will be cautious but I think it is fair to say that at some point over the summer we will see a return to facilitated international travel on the basis of a vaccination program which is going well now Uh, and I think that's going to open up possibilities for many Irish people at the back end of the summer if they do want to travel abroad and certainly it'll open up possibilities for people who want to visit Ireland as long as they've been fully vaccinated as well but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. Um, uh, The political decision on this by government has got to be fully informed by our public health team, as all the decisions that we're making in relation to COVID are. And and I think they will be cautious, uh, as they have been in recent months.
2: And Minister, will that apply to travel, do you think, within the EU only, Or could we look to our two big markets, which is the UK and the US, where vaccination numbers are actually way ahead of what we've got in the EU?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the likely scenario is that we'll certainly try to do something with with the UK. I mean, don't forget, we have a common travel area between Ireland and the UK. Uh, That is something that's precious and we have protected it through the Brexit process so we would certainly like to, to facilitate travel between ireland and the uk as soon as we possibly can safely do that uh, and of course you know i think you will see uh, and, and certainly president van der Leyen, president of the european commission has already stated that she would like to see fully vaccinated people from the us being able to come uh, and visit uh, whether on business or on holiday uh, the eu uh, safely um, and to be facilitated in doing so through uh, a new travel system. Do you think is there uh, a possibility, to facilitate transatlantic travel,
2: uh, Minister, given the common travel so, yeah, area, I mean, that I we might be able to... Sorry, Minister, cut across you there, um, but do you think is there a Sorry. possibility, given the common travel area, that we might be able to prioritise or facilitate that non-essential travel from the UK, perhaps before we have um, travel from other areas?
3: Well, I mean, I have to say, I think the common travel area with the UK is a big priority for me uh, uh, as a, you know, uh, uh, you know, as a foreign minister. Um, I mean, don't forget, people will be traveling from Great Britain into Northern Ireland all the time, uh, and uh, we don't have any border uh, on the island of Ireland between north and south. So so people will be traveling from Northern Ireland into the Republic. Um, so w- if you think about that, um, uh, it certainly makes sense. Uh, because we no longer have any restrictions on travel between counties, uh, that we are going to see uh, UK travellers coming into Northern Ireland and potentially coming across the border. Um, we obviously have to work with the British government to make sure that any travel between Britain and Ireland is done as safely as it possibly can be. And again, uh, as the, the British vaccine rollout uh, continues uh, uh, in a very successful way, uh they're you know they're about you know a month ahead of us uh, in terms of numbers um you know I hope uh, that later on in the summer we will be able to facilitate travel between Britain and Ireland but again you know that is a hope as a politician mm. uh I've got to work and the government has to work with our public health team to make sure that we do this safely because the last thing we want to see uh is international travel forcing us back into restrictions uh, in the late summer or early autumn uh, because we have seen a new wave of COVID infections starting to spread linked to international travel. We've got to prevent that, uh, but I think there is increasing confidence now in the UK, uh, in the government and across the EU that on the back of a successful vaccination rollout, we will be able to facilitate limited international travel linked to people who are vaccinated and i think we'll be okay. able to do that safely uh, but there are a whole series of decisions and discussions uh, before those decisions that are needed within government uh, on the international travel issue and i think we'll be able to provide a lot more certainty to the public this month later this month um, so that they can plan their their summer uh, with uh with more certainty in the context of international travel and how and when that might be facilitated
2: All right. I want to move on to the um, situation in Northern Ireland. I know you met with Brandon uh, Lewis today, and I take it the implementation of the protocol was, you know, at the top of the agenda. What is his attitude to the protocol in Northern Ireland?
3: Uh, Look, I mean, you know, we had a good meeting today, a long meeting today, and that followed uh, a good meeting in London uh, a few weeks ago, Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that politics is very fragile in Northern Ireland right now. And when politics is fragile and institutions are under some pressure, uh, it's really important that the British and Irish governments are working together, uh, talking to each other, uh, planning together, uh, and of course working with parties in Northern Ireland as well. So we know that the protocol linked to Brexit, uh, is causing a lot of political strain and polarization in Northern Ireland. We know that within the unionist community in particular, uh, there is a lot of resistance and concern around the implementation of the protocol. And we need to try to respond to those genuine concerns as best we can uh, in terms of a pragmatic and flexible approach to the implementation of the protocol. And I think that is what the European Union is trying to do now in its discussions with the British government. We also know that there's been challenges uh, in the context of policing in Northern Ireland. Uh, Of course, there is going to be a leadership change in the DUP, the largest unionist party. Uh, There also has been a lot of disruption to North-South Ministerial Council meetings uh, in terms of uh, some unionist ministers not turning up, um, which has been a frustration, although there was a successful North-South Ministerial Council meeting today uh, um, uh, between Eamon Ryan and uh, and Arlene Foster. Um, So, you know, the um, really we're at a point i think of ensuring that we protect the institutions of the good friday agreement in terms of a functioning executive and assembly in northern ireland that can make appropriate devolved political decisions for people in northern ireland Uh, but we also need to protect relationships north south and east west and we decided today that we would hold what's called a british-irish intergovernmental conference uh, which is a structure of the good friday Agreement to facilitate Formal discussion between Dublin and London uh, on East West issues linked to Northern Ireland. Uh, and we're going to hold that formal meeting uh, in mid June next month, uh, which I think is an indication of increasing cooperation between the two governments at a time when I think that is badly needed. Um, and so it- I think over the next few weeks, you will see a lot more formal interaction between the British and Irish governments trying to protect uh, what has been a hard won peace in Northern Ireland. Uh, Trying to protect the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement, trying to work with political leaders in Northern Ireland at a time of a lot of tension uh, and, as I say, polarisation in politics in Northern Ireland linked to some issues beyond the control of many Northern Ireland politicians. Um, That's particularly the case uh, in the context of the protocol and Brexit. And I'm, um, I'm very conscious of that as someone who's been in the middle of that debate for a number of years now. Uh,
2: You mentioned there is, of course, going to be a change of guard, uh, a new leader of the DUP. And one of those names potentially is uh, Edwin Putz. He said that ultimately this week, he said the protocol needs to go and that if he becomes the new leader, he intends to mount a legal challenge to the uh, protocol. How concerned are you about those comments?
3: Well I'm not concerned about a legal challenge I mean there's already a legal challenge of the protocol and but I think you know I think the legalities of the protocol are pretty sound I mean this is an international treaty between the EU uh, and the UK government mm. uh, it's international law now uh, and you know what the protocol effectively does is uh, it recognizes that Northern Ireland is outside of the European Union but it extends the EU single market for goods to Northern Ireland to prevent the need for any border trade infrastructure between North and South on the island of Ireland. But of course, the consequence of that is that goods coming into Northern Ireland from GB effectively are considered goods coming into the EU single market for for goods. And therefore there needs to be some checks in ports in Belfast and Larne and in in Belfast Airport. Um, But we we want to limit those checks to the greatest extent possible and to ensure that trade across the Irish Sea is as free-flowing as it can be. But the idea that the protocol can simply be dismantled, um, uh, you know, I don't think that's realistic, and I think we need to be honest with people about that. But we do need to listen to genuine concerns about how the protocol is being implemented and do everything we can within the confines of the protocol to respond to those concerns, and that is exactly what's happening.
2: We're going to have to leave it there, but Minister Simon Coveney, thank you for your time this evening.
3: Thank you. Any time. Appreciate
2: it. Well, joining me now here in studio is Minister of State for Disabilities in the Department of Children, Disability, Equality and Integration, Anne Rabbit, and Labour Party TD Duncan Smith. You're both very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you, Duncan. Uh, You heard a lot of the interview there with uh, Minister Simon Coveney. Um, What did you make of what he had to say regarding the potential for travel this summer?
4: Uh, I was encouraged by it. I think it's important that we are positive about the uh, digital green cert and there's still an awful lot to be ironed out in relation to it but we've been calling for and I've been calling for uh, a plan for the aviation industry in particular and for a safe return to travel. This gives us that pathway. And I think with the vaccination rolling out through our own country and throughout Europe, uh, improved testing, uh, rapid testing being looked at now and hopefully rolled out in the coming weeks, that there is a pathway towards a safe return for travel. So I think this is something we shouldn't be afraid of, but it's something we should be cautious about, as the Minister said, uh, but it's something that we do we do need.
2: We do need. When you say we need to be cautious about it, and you did hear the Minister say that a couple of times, what do you mean exactly? But
4: look, we, we just need to ensure that, I think we're at a stage now where we feel the vaccine rollout is starting to gather a bit of pace. So I, I'm getting a sense that there is a bit more optimism out there. Uh, we just need to maybe just just check that and make sure we just don't run away and start bringing deadlines forward or creating false deadlines uh, let's just, uh, as I say, be cautious, look at the trends, look at our vaccination rollout, look at the vaccination rollout and make good, uh, clear decisions that are rooted in, in as much evidence as possible. Uh, and um, as I say, don't be making false deadlines or bringing them forward.
2: Um, we heard the Tonneshah say last week that we would sign up to this digital green certificate, mm. but he said there will be a lot of discretion for member states in terms of how they opt in or opt out of it. Mm. So how should we opt into it exactly? Well,
4: I I think, and and the Tarnas just said, that we... As a country, have been conservative. There's a reason we're conservative because January, February are still very fresh in our memories in terms of what happened in in that wave and uh, the deaths and the pressure on our hospital system, and that's not too long ago. So I we we have a system now where we have managed hotel quarantine as well. So there's an awful lot for us to work through and iron out as we move through this digital green cert. So we can be conservative. We can put public health, uh, or I mean, we can be cautious, have public health at the centre of our decision making, but there's there's no reason to fear this. You know, we, we do have vaccination measures. We do have testing measures, which are far improved than uh, six months ago. And if we use them, we can we can move forward with this. Yeah. But
2: just to be clear, because um, what the Minister was saying there, and I think what Minister Thomas Byrne has said before, is this, you know, digital green certificate, maybe for people who've been vaccinated, mm. who have a negative PCR test, or who have had COVID and have recovered? Would you allow people who fit any one of those three categories to come into the country for a holiday?
4: no uh, me personally, as a... Public representative, I'd be looking at the advice of uh, the CMO and uh, for for something like that. But yes, I mean on, on on the face of it, if you're looking at someone who's vaccinated, has had a couple of negative PCR tests on departure, again on arrival, you know, uh, uh, who has who's had COVID in the past and has recovered from it, you know, we, we know a lot more about this illness than we did a year ago, than we did six months ago. So we, we need to be making decisions based on that. So, so does
2: that mean we need to to forget about the mandatory hotel quarantine? Because no, obviously there's people coming no, we, in. Um, Thanks. Mm-hmm coming into our mandatory hotel quarantine system who are arriving in with that negative PCR test. And we say that's not
4: enough. No, you can't forget about something like this, but we do need a plan to work out of it uh, eventually. This is an emergency measure. This is something to catch variants and it has caught variants. We have to acknowledge that. Mandatory hotel quarantine has caught variants, but this is not something that anyone wants to live with, you know, uh, long into the future. But it is part of a a, a suppression strategy which includes testing, which includes uh, pop-up testing centres, Uh, walk-in testing centres, PCR testing, rapid testing, that will need to be uh, retained in some fashion but with timelines to be moved out of.
2: Uh, Anne Rabbit, will you be booking a foreign holiday for July or August? No is the
5: answer. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm probably a little bit more conservative than most. I'm looking forward to the 10th of May. I'm actually looking forward to officially leaving me a county, not for work, but to visit family that live on the other side of the country and let my kids meet up with their grandparents. Um, I do believe in what the the Conister has said today and what, what Minister Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, have to say in it there is that they're giving us a lot of hope. There's a lot of optimism. I think there's pace taking place with the, the rollout of the vaccination. But at the same time, I'm in the Department of Health. And at the t- same time, we have to be guided by public health advice. So, so I will be taking a more cautious approach. I wish I was the, the minister that could sit here this evening and give all the hope to all the viewers that are listening in. But I, I can't do that.
2: That minister appears to be Minister Leo Radker, doesn't it? Because he was out today giving hope for you know the lifting of all restrictions come August, uh, indoor or day in pubs he's the minister for good news isn't he
5: um yes uh, uh, and uh, to be honest with you if we keep with pace the way we're keeping with it if the vaccination program continues the the way it is going at this moment in time and people continue to adhere to public health measures there is nothing to say that that won't happen but at this point in time we've yet to get to the 10th of may we've actually to get families reunited on the island first duncan you want to come in there
4: uh, we just need to be careful, I think, with the Tawnister and his utterances over the course of this pandemic. You know, he was the one who really pushed for the unwinding early last summer. He was the one who put the uh, slapped CMO down, let's be honest about it, in early October when he really shouldn't. So I, I think maybe when the Tawnister comes out and speaks on this, we maybe should remember those events.
2: So you think he shouldn't have said what he said today? No,
4: I, I, I think we've learned with the Tawnister over the course of this pandemic that sometimes he speaks maybe a little too early. We need to be cautious. We need to listen to public health advice. There is hope out there, but let's be cautious in terms of how we move forward.
2: Do you feel that, Anne-Rabbit? No. um,
5: Look, to be fair to the Thánaiste, I think he was setting out timelines to what we're looking for in in conjunction with the conversation we are just after hearing there from the Minister for Foreign Affairs about the digital uh, green cert. So to be fair, we can see um, the economy is starting to open up. Society is starting to to move again. And the natural progression is if we can manage to get our digital green cert positions put in place... Of course, we'd like to be in a position to be able to book our foreign holidays, but just not at the moment for me.
2: And for all of those publicans, um, vintners, all those restaurants who only have indoor space listening this evening, uh, the Thomas just said, with some confidence, prepare to open in July. Do you agree with that? Because that's a pretty big statement, particularly for businesses that have been closed for well over a year at this point. And
5: as I say, if we continue with the pace of where it's been delivered out at, at this moment in time, the rollout of the vaccination programme, and if the supplies are to keep going at the pace and the, the, the injections are going at the, to, to our shoulders at the rate that they're going to go, there's nothing to say we can't reach that, cure. Absolutely nothing whatsoever to say that. Um, but I suppose, coming from the Department of Health, we are a little bit more cautious and a little bit more prudent.
2: Okay, I just want to move on to another story that's been dominating um, the papers and the radio today. This is the role of uh, investment funds in our housing system. Is there a bit of a split in the camp, do you think, between Finnegails' approach to investment funds and Finnefoils' approach to investment funds, Duncan?
4: Um, maybe uh, the minister might be better to answer that question. Um, what's certainly clear from the opposition side is that we're absolutely furious with what's going on with what's happened in Kildare with also what, what's happening with uh, second-hand uh, homes as well this is going under the radar investment funds are very active in that market they're going in early getting homes before they even hit the market so we're not sure if these are even hitting the stats so there's massive dysfunction and what's going on I said in the doll today is insidious
2: um, And can I just bring up uh, something that was said apparently by your colleague John Lahart uh, at the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party this evening he said Fianna Fáil is drowning in the shadows of Fine Gael housing policy. Do you agree?
5: I didn't hear John say that cuz I'd logged off. To get prepared for tonight um, but I do know that the Taoiseach before I did log off the Taoiseach was very very clear he was very clear on the floor the all today um, we don't support um, investment funds coming in buying up houses that first time buyers or, or other families need to get access to them first absolutely not
2: this is not what we can do and by any manner or means but by all accounts the Taoiseach has just said at the parliamentary party meeting for Fine Gael, he's defended the role of investment funds and said actually we're getting in the neck um, from opposition because of Dara O'Brien's um, housing policy so it seems for the gail blaming Fianna Foyle and Fianna Foyle blaming Fine Gael? Well actually
5: Fianna have haven't blamed Fine Gael at all whatsoever. These investment funds that have come in or people who have come in or companies that have come in to buy properties um, we don't condone that by any manner or means. Um, Daryl Bryan has worked incredibly hard um, to get us to where we are with the affordable housing scheme and we're looking forward to getting that off the ground and rolled out.
2: OK we're going to have to leave it there but my thanks to Minister Simon Coveney and to Labour's Duncan Smith Minister Anne Rabbit is staying with us because after the break, Ombudsman Peter. Tyndall tells us why younger people living in our nursing homes have wasted lives.
6: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem
1: impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution
3: is plush care.
2: Very welcome back. Now, more than 1,300 people under the age of 65 are living wasted lives in nursing homes that are inappropriate for their needs. A new report by Ombudsman and Information Commissioner Peter Tyndall has found. The Ombudsman joins me here now in studio and Minister Anne Rabbit is also here to discuss this report. Um, Peter, thank you for coming in to us. What prompted you to carry out this research and to speak to 28 individuals out of the 1,300 that you uh, mentioned?
6: there? Um, We received a small number of complaints just in the ordinary run of our business from people under 65 living in nursing homes who said that they desperately wanted to move out but they could find no way to get the support they needed in order to do so. When we looked at their individual cases it was fairly obvious to us that this couldn't be isolated cases, that this was part of a pattern. And we then decided to widen the investigation so that we could tell the whole story.
2: And tell me about the experiences of those that you spoke to.
6: Well, people talked about the great poverty of experience that they have because their lives are so restricted by living in nursing homes. This isn't a criticism of nursing homes. I should say that at the outset. This is about people who don't want to be there. Now, what they told us was heartrending in many cases. Uh, One gentleman said to me that he'd entered the nursing home as a young man and now he was middle-aged and the best years of his life were behind him. Another gentleman talked about having been assaulted and suffering a brain injury which led to him having to be admitted to hospital and then to a nursing home. And what he said was that the person who assaulted him would leave prison before he could leave the nursing home.
2: And the nursing home, it appears, was there to sort of service their their medical needs but not their social needs, wasn't it?
6: Exactly. So many of the people were struggling to maintain friendships, to maintain relationships. They just, they lost their jobs. They completely lost contact. They found it very difficult to stay engaged in the community. And these were often people who led very full lives before the incident or illness that led to them having the incapacity. So that was, I think, one of the most striking things, that these are people with families, with friends, with partners who are not able to live their lives.
2: And what had been the circumstances that had led to them ending up in a nursing home?
6: They vary. Uh, some people would have been living at home with parents they, ha- with a disabil- they had a disability and their parents were no longer able to care for them. Some of them had accidents or some of them had degenerative illnesses. So there were different reasons why people ended up there. But the circumstances they found themselves in ultimately were very similar.
2: But they were all aware, uh, despite perhaps their injury or their disability, that they were living in a nursing home and that it was unsuitable for them. Well, the
6: people we were talking to were articulate and very capable of expressing their views and preferences. Now, there may be other people, obviously, who have greater difficulty in expressing their preferences. People we spoke to weren't in that category. They knew they didn't want to be there.
2: And what impact was this having on their mental health, to be in a facility, an institution, I think some of them called it, that you felt was just so unsuitable for you, your age, your needs, where you weren't surrounded by any peers or perhaps with any independence that you felt that you needed in your life?
6: People were largely depressed and um, listless would describe it for a lot of people. Some people were saying they would very little reason to get out of bed. They talked about the routine and you can imagine what impact that has on your mental health. There's so little stimulation in the environment. Some of them were helping the staff with the older residents because it gave them some meaningful occupation. One gentleman was running a, um, a small business, if you like. Um, repairing um, computers because he was quite a skilful gentleman and he, he mm-hmm. found that as a way of occupying his time. But for many of them, they were just waiting for the day when they could leave.
2: And I have to say, when I read this report today, I thought it was a really, really sad indictment of the provision of services for some people with a disability in this country. Yes, it's, um, it's a
5: sad day, to be quite honest with you, Keira. I have to thank Peter and his team for the work that they have done in bringing this to life. I also think the title of it says a lot, Wasted right. Lives. Um, so to be quite honest with you, I, it's not a proud moment to be a Minister for Disabilities, but it's a, it's a moment, and it's not just today. We, myself and Peter, would have met last year um, where I've put plans in place, Kira, to address this. Um, there's a line gone in the budget. While it might be only a small line, um, it's, it's a real line that I want to address this issue. I want to reverse the wrong, um, we're putting in place, working the department and the HSE with mapping it out to find out exactly where the 1300, and if more, where they are, mm. their locations, um, how they have ended up in nursing homes, what their conditions are, and how we can bring them back into the community. Because
2: what I really picked up from the report was that so little was known about these individuals and their circumstances. There were no red flags being raised. Was, were there in the Department of Health? It sounds like you weren't aware of this problem at all. Well, when I, I only became minister on the 1st of July, but that's
5: not an excuse Kira. This was going on for not a year or two years. One of the ladies interviewed this morning had been in a nursing home for 13 years. A lot of people left acute settings and they left acute settings on the understanding it was a temporary arrangement. And these temporary arrangements became permanent arrangements that went on for years. And their will and preference would have been to live in the community.
2: And you mentioned there is a line in the budget, €3 million. And you said there's a pilot project to move 18 people Mm -hmm. on. Out of 1,300, I mean, I know it's a start. I recognise and I hear what you say, but 18 people, is that not a bit of a pathetic target, to be honest? No, but let me
5: explain to you what the 18 is made up of. I think it's important for people to understand. We have nine CHOs. So we're taking two from each CHOs. While it's very, very small, it's actually to understand the mechanisms, the operational pieces within the CHOs, to see actually, to put a plan in place within every CHOs, to try it and test it to ensure we can look at the movement out at a more... At a, at a quicker level, at a faster pace and addressing the needs at a faster pace. And I'm using the word Kira at a faster pace.
2: But the target for the end of 2021 is 18 people still.
5: Uh, it is Kira. that is the so truth. Is there a target for 2022? Um, I am sitting down with the department and I'm also sitting down with the Minister for Older Persons and the Minister for Health um, because it doesn't happen to fall from one particular area how this mm. problem came about A person ended up in hospital. They then went through the fair deals system to get into a nursing home. And now the Minister for Disabilities is trying to fund a system to bring them all out. In actual fact, what we need to stop at this moment in time is actually people going from uh, acute into nursing homes. That's the first thing. Then it's the 18, And then it's a plan for the decongregating of the persons with the will and preference to actually, who can be supported independently. And it is about independent living, care.
2: And Peter, that was one of the things I picked up when I listened to some of the disability organisations speaking today on radio. They said, look... Ann Rabbit may be looking on the department to move 18 people out of nursing homes, but you can be guaranteed that there will be people within the HSC and the Department of Health who have a waiting list, who are looking to move 18 people straight back in.
6: Yes. One of the recommendations in the report, which uh, minister talks about is making sure that we have ways in place to stop long-term admissions to nursing homes. Um, some people may want to go there, which is fine. If that's their will and preference, that's absolutely fine. But for those people who don't want to, the first thing you need to do, in a sense, is to stop feeding more people yes. into the system. Um, I think the the issue about pace is important. Um, it's very pleasing that um, government have made the first steps. I think what we need to do now is get that database so that we know who the people are, we know how many people want to move out, where they are, what their requirements are in order to support them to move out, and then to put a programme in place with an end date that will say, by this time, I'm I'm realistic, I understand it it takes time and it takes money, but there needs to be an end date, and and that's the important thing.
2: And Robert, what is that end date, do you think? Can you give an end date? I can't at this moment,
5: Kira. I would be misleading people if I did. Um, But the end date has to be sooner rather than later. But the most important thing is persons going into nursing homes has to halt, has to halt now. Young people under 65, Mm. uh, if it's not their will and preference,
2: Putting these people in nursing homes is not acceptable as government policy going forward. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to the Ombudsman, Peter Tindall, and to Minister Anne Rabbit. And after the break, Alva Garrahi joins us to discuss her family business, Dublin Bay Cruises setting sail again, and her hopes for the summer season. Welcome back. Now with summer upon us and a lack of clarity surrounding international travel still. I'm joined in studio by the CEO of Language and Leadership, Gina London, and via Skype, the General Manager of Dublin Bay Cruises, Alva Garaghi. First uh, to you this evening, Alva, you managed to have your first sailing of the year last weekend. Was it a case of better late than never?
0: I think it was Kira. yeah we were absolutely delighted to be back on the bay and um, we were thrilled with the support that we got at the weekend um, the weather played ball thank God um, and it was very uplifting actually to see grandparents reunite with their grandkids you know safely outdoors on the bay um, so we're delighted to be back um, we are only operating at 50% capacity because we're trying to ensure that passengers have plenty of space outside, on deck, on the boat, but absolutely thrilled to be back in business.
2: Um, how long have you been closed then and when would you normally have reopened the summer schedule?
0: So we were closed since last September. So it's been seven long months, and um, we would usually start around St Patrick's Day. So, um, as you said, better late than never. And um, it was a bit later last year when we got to start start sailing again. So, um, yeah, it's 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 it is what it is, and delighted to be back. And hopefully, um, we'll have a busy season ahead. You know, we're really relying on the domestic market this year. Um, I guess international tourism—it's a big unknown at the moment, still. So hopefully uh, we'll have lots of families on board. You know, next week you can meet up with more households. Thank God, and inter-county travel is opening as well. So my message would be to the Irish people: would be, you know, please get out there and support your local tourist attractions and hotels, guest houses, B and B's, because um, we're re- relying on them this summer.
2: You really do need that domestic market, but is it enough for you, Alva? Because I know you've uh, obviously a business here in Dublin but you also have cruises out west. Would they also be able to rely on that domestic tourism industry?
0: It's a different story down west. So we we do, we operate ferries, Doolan to Arran ferries down the west, and we operate trips from Doolan to the Cliffs of Moher and the Arran Islands. And pre-pandemic, 70% um, of our consumers down there would have been international tourists. So unfortunately, we haven't been able to get going down there yet. We're hoping when inter-county travel opens up, you know, people will be heading that direction down to the Wild Atlantic Way, but it is a different story. And, you know, until we get those international tourists back, it is a huge hit to our business down in Clare. So, again, urging the Irish to please come down and explore the West, explore County Clare, and and jump aboard uh, with us to the Cliffs of Mower or to the Aran Islands. Um, you know, and I, I guess hearing Simon Coveney there, my hope would be, that the government are working with Tourism Ireland to really market Ireland. Um, you know, and, you know, it's one thing being able to travel here, but we're competing with a lot of other countries as well. So we would hope that the government, along with Tourism Ireland, would be working to really market us and to improve connectivity so that, you know, later this year and into 2022 and beyond, those international tourists and visitors will will start coming back to us again.
2: Um, we had a tour operator on the programme last night and they said, look, the domestic market will carry us until around mid-August, end of August. And then it starts to peter out as the kids go back to school and people's holidays end. And that's when we really need international tourism. Would it be too late for you if it was you know, reintroduced, let's say, August, September?
0: I mean, the, the summer season is, is short, you know, um, it would be great to have them to kind of see us out through the end of August and into September. And they do say, you know, that those tourists, they do tend to come kind of in the off peak time as well. And, you know, down west, we can sail until the end of October. Mm-hmm. So if if they're there, we'll absolutely take them and we'd be delighted to have them. What about the government supports?
2: Were they enough for you, Alva? Were you entitled to them?
0: I mean, it, it was great last, you know, March and April, twenty twenty. The the TWSS and the EWSS, uh, the Employer Wage Subsidy Scheme, they were quick to bring those in. You know, which was which was a support. Um, and then this year announced through Falcha Ireland, the, the tourism business continuity scheme. So for businesses that uh, met the criteria and could qualify for them, they were very, very welcome and appreciated. But again, it's a situation that needs, you know, we hope that the government will continue to monitor, monitor it because, you know, we again, we, we really need all the support we can get. And, right. and, and it has been good so far.
2: All right. Uh, thanks so much for your time this evening. Take care, Elva. Thank you, Kira. Alva Gary from uh, Dublin Bay Cruises there. Um, Gina, what are your multinational clients saying to you about their attitudes towards holidaying in Ireland this year, next year? Well, you know, that's part of what Alva's
1: talking about right now, this idea of messaging, getting out clear information about what is happening in Ireland. And for example, on Alva's website, she's got a big red banner that says, we're commencing in May. And that's what is is lacking, that mixed message that's happening right now, unfortunately, from Ireland to the rest of the world about what's at stake. I just talked to a travel agent in my home state of Indiana this afternoon, and I said, okay, my parents want to come to Ireland. What are you saying? She says, no go, mandatory hotel quarantine. And I said, okay, that's supposed to be being lifted, especially if you're fully vaccinated. What about then? She says, people are booking now. And that's what's happening with multinational clients all around the world. We've been trapped in our houses for a year, Kira, as you know, and people want to get out, but they also want to have quick information. They want to make their plans. And so it's important to have that competitive edge when you're communicating against Iceland, it's already saying, if you're fully vaccinated, no quarantining, no PCR, come in. Gibraltar, 100% vaccinated, they said, come right on. Israel is 81% vaccinated. And if you look at the the New York Times global vaccination mapping right now, of course, all of Europe is roughly 30 people to 100. Ireland has 32, of course, with a notable extin- distinction of the UK, which is 75, and Hungary, interestingly, which is 64. Most of the countries are in 30% of, out of 100. But back to that travel agent I spoke to in the United States, she says, if you go on tourism Ireland, there's not a clear message about when to open up. If you go on an equivalent site in France, it says, we're open in July, no quarantine. Greece, we're open in July, no quarantine. And so it's that clarity of messaging, communication, communication, communication to bring people in so they know when they can come. If it's
2: August, say it. So what you're saying is people are booking and they will book now where they know for sure what they're going to be able to do? Because especially,
1: for example, in the United States, where I'm from, where you've got 75 out of 100 people that are already vaccinated, they're already booking around the United States. Interestingly, they're already booking to Mexico and the Bahamas, which have much lower percentages of vaccinations, but they want to book and they want to book now. And it's interesting, too, along cruise, around cruise lines like Alva's, One of my clients is Carnival Cruises, and they have, if you go on their website right now, you can start to begin to book those holidays for August, even though, as I talked to an official this afternoon, they don't have confirmation when their ships are getting back in, but they are beginning to have that information out there to start to see what that interest is and get people excited about it. So they're working with the CDC. They hope to have the boats back or the ships back in the water in the next couple of months. But again, communication incrementally, judiciously, but try to not just leave people hanging or they're going to go elsewhere.
2: And we had Simon Coveney on the programme a little bit earlier and he was talking about this digital green certificate, perhaps we'll be able to travel by July, August, talking about the UK, talking about the US. And he said it could be the end of this month, maybe next month when they're able to give more clarity. Do you think that's too late?
1: Well, I think it's a little bit like we're li- it's not too late necessarily, but we are a little bit like the Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch had that the, the hourglass with the sand through and you're looking at it and you feel like in every grain that's going is missed opportunity to recoup that 80% that was re- reduction in travel to Ireland last year from ship and air. And those are really important dollars or euros, as, as Alva was talking about, and others are experiencing as well, the international travel dependency of this country or the excitement of tourism is really important. And so to even be able to say, by August, I know that it's difficult to give yeah. definitive answers when you've got vaccination and variants at play, but as much as you can try to say, let's open the doors, Here's what the pol- here's what the process is. And give some clarity so people can feel a sense of it it's going to be a volatile vacation season anyway but as much as you can try to say here's what our plan is as quickly as you can we'll give you that competitive edge
2: okay so we're going to give you the plan but the proviso look if something happens with a variant or high numbers we may have to close the country down again that's okay It's better than no clarity at all. It's
1: absolutely right.
2: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Gina London and to Alva Garahi. I'll be back here tomorrow night at 10pm. And don't forget, The Tonight Show is now available to download as a podcast. But until tomorrow night, stay safe. Good night.
1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
6: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.